This is an ABC podcast. The NFL has all those weird signals. and Did you guys read that article this week about sideline symbols that are going to revolutionise AFL? So apparently, <laughs> um, you know, too much pressure on the runners to get the messages out and they've identified that there's probably 40 standard signals you can just put on an LED board and hold up on the sidelines. <laughs> like a finger or something. What could possibly go wrong? A middle what? finger. Semaphore? What's that flag one? Yeah, semaphore. semaphore. Yeah, no, I think like... People are referring to them as emojis and Steve Hawking's like going, no, that's making it like frivolous. It's not funny. Like these are like 40, like someone's sitting there at the moment in AFL house coming up with 40 standard signals that mean things like that steaming poo emoji. (laughs) 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 Your shorts are falling down. But is this, this must be in um, response to the fact that runners aren't going to be allowed onto the field. And so I always thought the thing about runners is that it's like secret. You come out with secret things. So is everyone going to know what you're doing? So they could do that baseball thing where you kind of signal the fake, like you do all the fake signals and then you have a cue signal that says this is the real one. And then, oh my God, God, it's so covert. What if it's opposite day? (laughs) (laughs) Like some sneaky team going, let's just do opposite day. So if a steaming pile of poo comes out, you go like, no, it's actually good, guys. It's It's well done. Yeah. If the whole team's bad too, they do it on that LED like boundary, like (laughs) the steaming (laughs) But surely they're going to have to have their own symbols like baseball or American football where they shout out stuff. So do they have to learn a new playbook every year? No, apparently there's going to be 40 approved ones for the whole. Approved. But everyone will know. I know. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. You know what will stay though? That eggplant one is still like no dickheads at the club. Exactly. No dickheads policy. I'd like one of those boards like in a portable version for the car, like with 40 standard um, signals (laughs) to give to other drivers. Like (laughs) this is what I'm actually thinking. Because it's not always covered in a hand gesture. Yeah, okay. I've always thought horns should have a couple of different tones to them. Oh, like a friendly... Yeah, nice. Yeah. Look, Eddie Betts needs to go to the toilet. That's the emoji over there on the symbol. <laughs> that would be a standard. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's a dominant force. If there is a weak spot out there, she can actually turn that around and use it to your advantage. At the top of the goal square, she kicks it. She snaps a spectacular tumbling goal. There's the third Groundbreakers. History makers. This is The Outer Sanctum on ABC Radio. It is the Outer Sanctum and we are so thrilled to be back for another week. And a special welcome today to all of our listeners, but especially two of our newest, Sylvie and Roy. More on that soon. I'm your host, Emma Race, and I'm joined, as always, by my football-loving lady friends. I'll let them introduce themselves. Good morning. It's Lucy Race here. Alicia sometimes. Nicole Hayes. Hi, happy Saturday. It's Felicity Race. Oh, it's nice to have you back. Have a Saturday morning here. It's a bit fun, isn't it? I miss you. If anyone playing along at home, it's not just a coincidence that three of us have the same surname. We are sisters. So if you can tell our voices apart, you're doing better than our mother. (laughs) Today on the show, we are deep diving about coaches and people who have been mentors. And we are so excited to speak to GWS coach Alan McConnell, who we haven't spoken to previously. Obviously, but um, he's so loved by his team. We can't wait to find out exactly why. We're also going to be speaking to the coach of the formidable North Melbourne midfield, Lauren LJ Moorcroft, will be here. She's been a sanctimer all along, so we can't wait to get her in the studio. We're also honoured to welcome into the Outer Sanctum today, Craig Foster, who traditionally is a round ball kind of a guy, but a humanitarian who will, you will know was instrumental in securing the passage back to Australia for her so we are so excited and there was beautiful scenes last night at um, Pasco Vale where 
um, Hakeem went back to his soccer club. He didn't play last night, but we're looking forward to talking all about um, the way that sport can influence. And we want to hear from you guys today. We love that we're on air so that we can actually hear from you. When we're doing the podcast only, we don't get to hear your beautiful voices. We're speaking today about people who have been mentors or what makes a great mentor. And there was um, something that happened in your life this week, Alicia, which is actually a really important moment to mark. It is. A teacher at my kids' primary school, Mr. Marcus Champion, passed away this week. He was a PE teacher and a teacher in the classroom and he was such a role model to so many kids that the wise words that he put out, his kindness, he carried himself with such grace, such a loved member of the community. And it just reminded me of how many people that we look to in our youth that affect us greatly and um, carry us on forever. And he will be so missed. And um, yeah, I get teary thinking about it. It's it's also amazing to think about the ripples of how many people that how many lives he would have touched which is you know really beautiful I have a um, experience of being witness to a singing teacher and his student and one of the things that always strikes me about that relationship and the quality that stands out for me is how collaborative that process can be despite it's such a big gap in age and experience and I think it really points to um, an incredible respect which um, I think that's something that you take from mentors and, and coaches as well. It's interesting what makes a great mentor for one person may not for another person. <laughs> and uh, we, we've been talking about it this morning and I know this is going to sound crazy and you'll think I'm joking, but if I had to name a mentor for me, <laughs> it would probably be Beyonce. It was always <laughs> going to be Beyonce, <laughs> wasn't it? Wow, that's Isn't so surprising. That okay? But I'll tell you why, because she reinvents herself time and time again. Just when she's got to the top of her game, she looks at how she's going to change it up again and I think that that's really brave and it really inspires me. It's interesting because when we were talking about this topic before, we were we were sort of discussing the fact that none of us have really played in a, a team sport at a high level where you have <laughs> that uh, coaching relationship. And when you talk about mentors, you often think about sports coaches. But it's really interesting to watch those relationships and we've had some really great insights watching some amazing coaches. And so... I've decided probably I'm in the market for one. <laughs> so I could, I, you know, sometimes you just need an adult to just step in. And yeah. to be honest, my sisters here aren't stepping <gasps> up. So not adult enough, Beyonce. So, um, yeah, I reckon, I don't know, Patrick Hill, are you listening? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I could do with some coach advice sometimes, I think. I always remember one of the formative coaches I had when I was younger. And it's great advice, I think, that we all should take on board. But she, I remember her saying to me, don't be afraid to screw up. And I thought that was so really important. great. You've Except really run with it. I really have run with it. But I have to say, in the middle of a game, not much later, she said, go out there. Now, don't screw up. Oh, so yeah. it's a bit confusing. Carol Brady did that. She said to her kids, don't screw up and, you know, it's Look okay to screw up. Carol? Carol, Carol didn't Brady. say screw. No, she no, didn't. No, they did my coach, actually. <laughs> Alice may have. We put this out on Facebook earlier and um, Andrew has come back with what he thinks makes a good coach. And he said, someone who helps you identify your strengths and takes time to understand what things are important to you, then challenges you to deploy those strengths or prioritise particular tasks as a means of having some of the more things important to you present in your life. They also need a good catchphrase. So 
when they make a Disney movie about you <laughs> and your terrific coaching and mentoring, it can be emphasised during a stirring halftime speech. Let it go. Good. Let it go. Oh, I thought clear, clear yeah. eyes full heart. How have I forgotten that, Coach oh Taylor? I'm gosh. so sorry. That's oh, terrible no, right. of me. But it is time for us to roll up our sleeves and melee. Ladies, there's been so much conversation this week about the conferencing system. Um, we, I think I'm probably in the minority where I'm like, I'm all right. At the moment, I'm okay with it. But what do you think, Lucy? My big concern is that it could potentially be really unfair for a team that finishes third with a higher number of wins and percentage that if they have to sit out from the finals and watch teams that don't have the same number of wins or, you know, as good percentage play. And so that's that's an overriding negative for me. But I will say that I did try to find an advantage and I found one. There's, there's something really in the fact that it really is keeping the interest. And so for certain teams like, say, you know, Collingwood or GWS that, you know, this time last year without having um, had a win would be, you know, completely unable to play finals, It's it keeps the season alive. So I think it does maintain some interest or a lot of interest in, in those games. It's interesting that a lot of people saying, of course, Conference A is stronger than Conference B, but as the, the weeks go on, that could change in any given year, that could change. And that's the same when uh, people put out uh, the fixture for the year too. You well, never know what's going to be at the top. Yeah, that year-to-year thing makes it really tricky. Uh, I don't know how they're going to come up with the system ongoing, but I think the fact that the clubs that are doing underperforming are big fans of the conference kind of says a lot about the fact. <laughs> <laughs> but but the only thing that I am have been reassured by is the fact that the preliminary games would be the preliminary finals will be A one playing B two, so and B one playing A two. So I still think you're talking about bananas. bananas, in bananas. bananas. <laughs> well, there is there is an aspect to that, but it does it does look. What it means is more than likely the preliminaries will be a blowout, looking at the results the way that they are potentially, but that the grand final still has that potential to yeah. be a really good game. Do you know? There's no way you could have predicted how this was going to play out, I don't think, with the the strengths in both conferences. And I think last year the AFL came under a lot of criticism for knee-jerk changes to um, the rules of AFLW whilst the season was underway, you know, memo gate, et cetera. <laughs> um, so whilst we're all talking about it, I, I think you just have to you have to choose a system and stick with it um, mm. and then review it in the off-season. So whether you like it or not, it's it's here for now, isn't it? Yeah, I definitely thought um, Debbie Lee made some excellent points when the conferencing was being organised and they went on what the teams had achieved in the year previous to kind of separate them. With so much movement between lists, there's just no way that you no. can actually anticipate what that's going to look like. So I did some adjustments last night. I did actual maths and oh, stats. So I'm not going to bore you with it, but <laughs> if a certain permutation and combination happens today, you know, we're going to reach kind of a tipping point where there's going to be so many teams potentially at the end of this round that are on two wins. Depending on what the scores are, the ladder will look really different. Like it will mix it up. And then next week, even further. And I think that what will happen is it will start to come clearer as the journey of the competition keeps going. And the perfect metaphor for that is, you know, the moment when you're sitting in the hairdresser's chair and you've got the plastic cape on and your hair's wet and they've parted it to the wrong side and then you're looking at yourself under the tube lighting and you think, I have never <laughs> looked worse and I came here to look better. But then all of a sudden the process happens. They rip off the cape. And you've got beautiful hair at the end. I think that's what the conferencing system oh. is going to be oh, like. I thought Are you, you said gonna... a perm. I thought, you... <laughs> I thought you 
thought you were going to say, and that's when the, your car parking beeps to say you have to run out into the street <laughs> with boiling hair. Maybe, but this is what this is the way I'm thinking of it. And I would like you to come on the journey with me and appreciate that. Now, another thing we saw that was a bit of an anomaly this week was there was some reports last weekend that I thought were going to be huge game changers for the games that we're about to see this weekend, but they all got thrown out at, at the tribunal, Lucy. Well, there were um, not all of them, but two two big ones. So Taylor Harris had been given a week for her bump on Pepper Randall and Tegan Cunningham had been given two weeks um, for what was deemed to be an intentional strike to the head off the ball to Shannon Campbell. Now, both of those um, clubs went to the tribunal. Harris argued that the impact was low because... Pepper was able to get up and take her kick and the panel agreed and so that was downgraded to a reprimand. With um, Tegan Cunningham's, the demons argued that it wasn't even a reportable offence and the panel agreed and it was thrown out. They basically argued that it wasn't intentional and it wasn't careless. What I kind of come back to is thinking, I don't mind reports, like, I mean, of course you don't want to see it happen, but if there's something that an umpire thinks is questionable, I don't have a problem with them reporting it. And especially in this league where you've got developing umpires and developing players and where health and safety has to be paramount, what I have a bit of an issue with is the fact that players can accept a certain sanction with an early plea. And so they kind of have to gamble about whether they're going to take it to the tribunal Mm. or not. And I think, you know, again, we talk about the short season and how intense it is. I would really like to see that taken out of it so that you can discuss what happened and, you know, potentially have the right outcome. My concern is obviously there's some suggestions around inconsistency, but if the tribunal system is supposed to act as a deterrent, if the onus is on the the recipient, the, the player who is hurt and how hurt they are based on their response, Pepper Randall's a pretty tough operator. So the fact that she was able to bounce back, another player might not. You know, what are the players going to sort of measure who they're about to hit and who they're not? It doesn't really deter the behaviour in the first place. And incidentally, she did miss training on Monday night. So maybe her comeback wasn't as, mm. as strong as that. Yeah, I mean, looking at the gamble that you're talking about, you know, you would always take the early plea, I would imagine. Like, you can't risk four weeks when we still don't have a pro-rated system mm. For, mm. for penalties where essentially you miss 50% of the season for a, you know, an incident that in AFLM might be a, you know, a one-week suspension. It, it, it's in the post-Katie Brennan report mm. era, you know, I think that's still an area that we have to look at. I really like that there's a title for it, which is post-Katie Brennan report era. Yeah. And also just a just a big up for you, Lucy, because you said the word tribunal and you got it right. Yeah, well, well done. done. For a, a sports broadcaster, that is a real trip up. We have been joined on the line by, <laughs> by Knowles. Knowles, you're there. Do you like the conference system? Oh, I love it. Oh, It's fantastic. Why? You know why? Oh. We have lulled you all into a sense of security, just like <laughs> AFLM last year. Colin was lost a few games and everybody's forgotten about it. And we're coming back this week, I'll I, tell you what. I hope so. Look, I'm on your side, Knowles. And blowouts in, in preliminary finals. I love blowouts in preliminary finals. That's the way we roll. That's fantastic. So we'll take that on and uh, and I'll see you in the granny. Yeah. Sounds fantastic. I love that positivity. Thanks for calling us. You're so on the money. It's actually true. It could. Yeah. It really yeah. actually it could, could we'll happen. Call it, we'll call it the stealth approach. <laughs> we will call it the stealth approach. We're getting some nice texts through about the conferences. Why not one plays one and two plays two? You'll assume 
assume that the powerful A teams will win and hence they play off for the GF Nash. Yeah. People are thinking about it. Has Gillum and has Gill I think someone's asking is has Gillum McLaughlin announced that the halftime entertainment at the AFLW grand final is going to be AFLX? <laughs> Look, I don't think so, but you know we'll be marching in the streets if that does happen. But we'll I be rock, paper, scissoring <laughs> and way through it. I know we're not talking too much about AFLX, but when they have a designated fan uh, area and the best thing they said last night is we have it all going on, balloon animals, face painting. It was I a mean, six-year-old's birthday party. It, it was. was. Hilarious. I mean, a good birthday oh, party a for a six-year-old. One. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm Emma Carney and you're listening to The Outer Sanctum. We have been enjoying the social media offerings of GWS and I'm very keen to know if our next guest enjoys starring in Instagram posts and on Twitter as well. We welcome to the Outer Sanctum for the first time, GWS coach Alan McConnell. How are you, Alan? Good morning, Emma. How are you? Really well. Um, We're very pleased to speak to you. You've got a huge game coming up tomorrow. It is almost make or break it time. Has the preparation stayed the same going into this week's game? Yeah, look, to be honest, uh, we, I've sort of really not talked. I'm more interested in how we play rather than what the outcome is. You know, when you've lost the first three games, uh, and each for different reasons, I think what's most important is that you uh, um, try and just uh, worry about being consistent over four quarters with the things that you value. Are the players um, feeling like they're still in control of the season? Um, I, to be honest, I haven't discussed it. I, I certainly do. I think if you... There's lots of conjecture I know around the around the conference system, but it's um, pretty good for us right now. And uh, and as a result of that, we don't have to worry too much other than what uh, what we can control. So, Alan, as you mentioned there, you guys are really only a win and some percentage away from being top of the ladder. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're in, we're I'd in, love we're to know. Good, we're in good form, aren't we? What are, your, what are your critical thoughts about the conference system? You know, because you've played under both. You you know, last year was quite different to this year. It's not that simple. You know, like I, I think that, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a member of the game committee that sort of was part of the decision-making process and all this, so... Uh, I'm as responsible as anybody for where we're at. And the truth is, I think it was made for good reasons, some of which are economic, some of which are uh, you know, around growth of the game, and some of which were based on the available knowledge and information at the time. And um, it's easy to be smart in hindsight. But the reality is that part of the reason for the conference system was that it was belief that it would generate interest in the game. And it's certainly done that, albeit some of the publicity is not that good. Um, Alan, it's Felicity here. You, you talk about growth of the game and part of that is coming up with um, with new players to introduce into the game. I know you've had a lot of experience over the years in the academy and the uh, the Tech Cup pathway for young men. How are the pathways for young um, girls and women comparing now? It's an interesting question. You know, look, each year um, over the last couple of years since I've been involved, the, um, the academy girls from around the country have been coming in to train and um, I was astonished that the quality of the three girls we've heard from New South Wales and came in to train with us this year compared with previous years. Oh, I felt their skill level was um, significantly better than was previously the case and I think their game knowledge also is uh, significantly improved. And, and equally, I think um, the drive to want to be involved, I guess the sense that um, this is really something I want as opposed to something that's a bit of fun. I'm encouraged by the by the quality of the pathway and the girls within it right now. That said, um, another four teams is certainly going to stretch the uh, stretch its limits and our ability to find girls from both within it and from outside of the mainstream footy talent pathway. Uh, hi, Alan. It's Nicole here. 
You spent your formative years as a player and coach at traditional legacy clubs like the Bulldogs and Fitzroy. How different has it been to come to a club like GWS where you're basically building a culture from scratch? I've explained it in the past as being a bit like on the same highway, but just heading in a different direction. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, particularly if we relate it to my coaching experience with Fitzroy, we were on a we we're on a highway to hell, <laughs> in a way. Um, and, and the reality is that at um, at the Giants, we've sort of been on the same highway, highway, but heading hopefully towards the sunset. You know? um, and I mean that, I guess, in the sense of you know resources and. Um, not or culture, um, list, you know, like in every in every sense, you know, I, I guess on some level at some point you're quite under-resourced and not quite sure how you're going to um, manage the outcome. And the same was very true at Fitzroy then with, you know, with limited finances, you know, we were pretty under-resourced and, and battling to try and um, put up a competitive um, performance on weekend. So um, they've all been great experiences that have contributed to my ability to play a part at the club. Alan, it's Alicia. And on that, I wonder what it's been like with the social media campaign. You've mentioned a pop culture reference there and you've got so many amazing players that we're getting to know and love through these social media campaigns and videos. What's that been like within the club? I'd have to say that our media team this year has has excelled themselves. Their ability to um, promote our club, I mean, the fact that we have we have uh, a young woman from our team on the 7.30 report this week is, like, it's like amazing, you know. So the ability of the uh, the media team to, to do that has been has been great. But the other thing that's happened for me is it's meant I've had to get on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> because it's the only way I know what our girls are up to. <laughs> that's called due diligence, Alan. <laughs> yeah, it's also called stalking us. <laughs> We are speaking with the coach of the Giants, Alan McConnell. Alan, we've heard tell of really positive things about GWS, about how the men's and women's teams are really integrated and the opportunities that both men and women have at the club are very equal. Do you and Leon Leon Cameron share intel? Uh, well, um, I'm the director of coaching in the men's program, so I'm hoping we're sharing some <laughs> uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, albeit at this time of the year, um, the time involved in the women's program means my contact with the men's program is a, is a little limited. So the second that this gig's over, I'm, I'm full steam ahead um, working with the coaches in the men's program and, and my role is to, is to coach those guys. The truth is that the, the big advantage we have, as you talked about earlier, is we're a new young club. So culturally, we're not trying to undo or unravel 100-year histories. Um, we're, we're creating our own as we travel. So that's been relatively simple. And Alicia Eva is always touted as a possible excellent coach for the future. Yes. Does she come to you? Do you have a mentoring relationship with her or is it player and coach during the season? Player and coach during the season in the women's program, but then she's a line coach for our reserves team in the NEFL competition for the men. And so in that context, you know, we'll chat occasionally about um, how you might manage a certain situation and certainly during the year there'll be an opportunity for me to work in a mentoring role as I do with all of our other coaches in that space. Alan, it's Lucy again. We've been talking about the qualities of, of particular coaches and I was wondering if your players were asked to describe you as a coach, what do you think they'd say? <laughs> what would be their first thing? <laughs> um um, I, I, I don't know. Are you I, tough? I, I, um, yeah, I can. But yeah, I don't. I, I think they probably think of so. So it's a bit quirky. I think. <laughs> I, I, look, the reality is, if you if you invest 
heavily in relationships, you can drive standards far more easily. And so I think both of those things are true in terms of what I try to attempt to do with the group. On Lucy's hard-hitting question, it's Alicia again, I just want to know if you think the process has been highway to hell, um, what pop song would you be? Because I can just see <laughs> this behind you on an Instagram post. What would it be? Uh, no, no, I think I best I leave that for others. It's not my... Not much space music, really. With, for the teams like, say, GWS or Collingwood who are looking for a win, are there particular challenges of a short season? And then also, you know, more broadly, coupled with one-year contracts for players, how do you approach long-term development? Yeah, belonging is a particularly important thing in, um, in a team culture. And I, I think even more so with women in, in team sports to facilitate good performance. And one-year contracts are a nightmare in mm. that regard. Mm. Um, and, and when you add to that, you know, the, the shortness of the season, it's a, it's a bit of a stretch at times mm. to, to manage anxiety that's not necessarily just about the game but about their livelihoods. Because in our, in our case, it's not just about whether they'll be at our football club next year, it's whether, whether they'll have the same job, the same house that they live in. Um, the implications are probably much greater for us than anybody else. Alan, we'll let you go because we know you've got to start the long trek to Maui <laughs> to play yeah. Collingwood. One thing I wanted to leave you with was um, there's always beautiful, indelible images that stay with us about AFLW after every season. And one that's already definitely in my top two is um, you with your grandchild on your knee at the AFLW launch. It was about 150 million degrees and you were sitting in the shade. It just spoke to me so much that you were sitting there with this little tiny person who will never know that women's football didn't exist. And it was a beautiful moment. I stole a photo and I hope that's okay. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. And uh, one of the consequences of being a football coach is you don't get the chance to do that as much as you'd like. And, uh, you know, they live in another state. And, you know, my season goes for about 35 weeks, so, which means I don't get a chance to cuddle him too much. So it was a pretty special day. Well, it was beautiful to see and I'm glad that you got that opportunity. Thank you so much for joining us and very best of luck against the Pies this weekend, Alan. Thanks, ladies. You can see why people like him when he's got that little giggle, <laughs> that little Al McCollinall giggle. It's just delightful. Uh, it was so nice to be joined by him. We are about to be joined by Craig Foster. We'll just have you know it's very exciting. Alicia, did you actually have a song in mind when you asked Al McConnell what his song well, is? I was thinking Gas Giants by Tears for Fears, but <laughs> how about something beautiful like Someone Like You by Adele or something oh, like that? Oh, I can see that. Yeah. I was thinking you got to know when to hold him, know when to fold him. Is that good for a coach? <laughs> the Gambler. Maybe? The Gambler. Um, we're getting. Oh, I don't condone gambling, though. Can <laughs> no, I just say that on the no. record? We're getting some beautiful text messages through from people who are talking about. We're talking today about people who are great mentors and what makes them great mentors. And this one, empathy is the key to all empowerment of others. Brilliant mentors, coaches, and leaders all have it. Nobody will buy into what you say or your strategies unless they truly trust you and have their empowerment and well-being at the very centre of your mind. True. Oh wow. I definitely feel like that for Beyonce. My role model was Lisa Alexander, says one of our texts. She was my year 12 teacher and netball coach many years ago. She was tough and caring off the court, on and off the court, made me be a better netballer and I became a teacher because of her. 
That's so nice, mm, isn't yeah. it? I love that. Also, this one. I'm a dad who took his son to AFLX last night. We both loved the experience more than the footy, but can't wait for next year. Cheers, Danny. And just a heads up, Hodgie from uh, – <laughs> Hodgie, not the real Hodgie, not our Hodgie, I don't think. Not No, he's from – Catamatite, is that right? How is that Catamatite? He's loving the show, wants to know if any of us are single. We all are. Yeah. We are looking forward to catching up with Craig Foster, but one other thing that has been happening is that you guys have been sending us some beautiful audio from the outer. We've really been loving hearing from you when you've been out and about at AFLW Games, and this week's correspondents were all at Hickey Park for the Demons-Lions game. We want to say, uh, say thank you very much to Ben and Fleur and Carol. G'day, Outer Sanctum. It's Ben here. We've grabbed a footy, we've grabbed some mates, we've headed down to Hickey Park to watch the Demons play the Lions. We've got our picnic rug. We're absolutely loving the footy. Just don't mind us, though. The sirens is gone. We're going to have to leave. See you later. Bye. Hi, Out of Sanctum. This is Fleur at Hickey Oval, loving the Lions-Ds game. Here with seven of my great mates, because you've got to bring a mate to footy. And we're all feminists. We love the podcast. How great's footy? G'day, Sanctimonious. Carol here, just back from Hickey Park, where the Lions got absolutely bollocked by the Demons. Um, it was good footy if you liked your footy in blue and red. Good things. It doesn't look like Sam Virgo's injury is too bad. Kate McCarthy tried all day. Um, It was just... We're not used to that here. Anyway, uh, bring on round four. Can only get better. I'm Ali Blackburn and you're listening to the Yowda Sanctum. Earlier, Kate, Alicia and I were lucky enough to catch up with Australian soccer legend and spearhead of the Save Hakeem campaign, Craig Foster. I actually just had lunch with some of the people I never met who were doing all the tweeting. Oh, yeah. We ended up creating a little community and um, and so we just met up. There was five of them. It's just like amazing. I want to start by asking you about an open letter that you've written, which is just hot off the press, an open letter to Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Bill Shorten, Leader of the Opposition. It's a fantastic article, which I recommend to our listeners. But among other things, you wrote something, and I'll quote here, that the nation's values underpinned our unshakable conviction in his right to freedom. And you're writing there, of course, about Hakeem. I wonder, I wonder if sport, though, also informed your values, and if so, how it has shaped your values and, and your advocacy in recent months and years. Yeah, well, it has um, very much. I think um, many of us feel very strongly about having played for the country, and the the moments when we were able to achieve that was kind of on two levels. One was that as a as a young, generally a young athlete or sports person you've put so much effort into and everyone is so very proud of you and the family's proud and you feel as though you're playing for your community. But I think also as you get older, you realise you really were playing for the values of the country and what you believed in. What's interesting to me, we're talking a lot about athlete activism recently or former athlete activism in my case, in particular the recent uh, Indigenous NRL All-Stars. From what I could see, and I kind of had my head in Hakeem's issue, but they refused to sing the anthem for instance at the opera house uh, protest that we did i was explaining to the press that we didn't play for the flag you know the, the flag can change clearly right and and many of us feel that it should we didn't play for the anthem but we played for the people and the values of the country that's why we felt that's why today i think we feel so proud of having played for something and here we were fighting for those same values and that is about 
why Hakeem was incarcerated for the opposite reason, and that is freedom of speech and democracy and the fact that we can speak up against our own government. And the, the real benefit of Hakeem's case was sometimes you need to see what the opposite is to really appreciate what you have. And when he came to uh, Parliament House, I sent out a tweet actually, and many MPs um, came up to say, look, it's kind of nice to read because they spend so much time fighting each other. They don't actually get the opportunity to step back and say, you know what, it's it's pretty special that they are able to fight in many respects and that we're able to uh, agitate so strongly against them. And if we want a strong message against Scott Morrison or the, the present government, we're, we're capable of doing so. One of the things about the issue with Hakeem that really... Um, I guess incensed to me was this concept of the monarchies. You had two uh, royal families, particularly the Bahrain one, but essentially you had these entities who were very much above the law, they're above international law. And so at, at one level we were advocating for Thailand and Bahrain to abide by international law because that's how... Uh, that's how we could hold them accountable. But we also knew that we just had to raise the pressure to an unprecedented level because they actually, in many respects, were above the law. That's why he was incarcerated. That's why uh, around 150 athletes were imprisoned and some of them tortured. And uh, for all of those reasons, what we believe in as Australians and the benefits that we have in this country were a very strong component of not just what we fought for, but actually, in the end, getting him out. I noticed um, a lot of the commentary, and it always comes up that, you know, um, athletes shouldn't get involved in politics, but mm. the very nature of Hakeem's reason for being here and being protected was he was persecuted because he was an athlete in the first instance. Oh, totally right. You know, what happened back at that time? Look, one of the overlays of Hakeem's case, which we didn't speak a lot about, was also the religious aspect, because to us it was about a young man who was improperly incarcerated. He spoke out against the head of the AFC and his international human rights were being breached. But, you know, in many countries, there's there's uh, other forces at play. And one of those, of course, in Bahrain is Shi and Sunni and, and all of those things. Um, you know, those countries have other problems that Australians don't have to face. And that was one of the reasons why this particular section of athletes who had a peaceful a pro-democracy protest were actually singled out. That was one of the problems in Hakeem's uh, campaign for us was about halfway through, I received a letter from supposedly some people or the people of Bahrain, which was very complimentary, but it was very worrying to us because it became clear that Hakeem was now becoming a figure of inspiration and hope mm -hmm. for many people in Bahrain. And I would say are quite likely the majority. That was very concerning because then we realised, okay, that means, you know, these people here... Uh, really need to keep him in <laughs> because uh, this is a big loss for them. This is not just a lack of an extradition. This is actually a figure of inspiration. So some some people were starting to call him a freedom fighter. Well, he's just a kid who was tortured and just and all of a sudden was back in jail and, and needed to get out. The issue of athlete activism is a really uh, a very interesting field. Um, my personal view is that, yes, people are uncomfortable if, for instance, let's say one of the NRL stars uh, happens to start advocating on the field for Scott Morrison or for Bill Shorten or for Labor. But when we talk about human rights and when we talk about, you know, police brutality on Colin Kaepernick and these things, usually or often history proves them right. 
is why I'm a huge advocate of it. And and this was part of the narrative of what we just accomplished was as an ex-player, I can sit on SBS for the rest of my life, have a, have a nice life. You know, I, I have a wonderful family and there's no reason for any of us to really do anything. But we, I feel as though we have an obligation. It's given us a good life and because of that we have a public profile and if we don't use it, then I actually think that we are deficient in some way. And particularly when it's someone within sport, our own sport, yes, but even more broadly within sport, then we certainly have a duty to step forward straight away. It was great what you wrote that membership of the international sporting community carries the basic obligation to respect Mm. humanitarian values and to treat participants of all people with the utmost respect, Mm. care and care. Um, How do you feel that the sporting community stepped up in this situation? Mm, Good, good question. Um, Football was really unimpressive. Football actually was quite horrible. The, The broader athletes and Olympians actually were better than our own community. So Nikki Dryden, uh, you know, was a was a Canadian Olympic swimmer who's a human rights lawyer, very strong, you know, capable, smart. She really took the lead with with uh, Natalie Galea, who was a uh, judoka uh, Australian, and Steve Hooker stepped up very quickly, and all of a sudden, and we they took the lead, but we were able to organise a letter to go to Scott Morrison, and our own community um, was really slow. We that's one of the reasons why we came to Hakeem's Aid so quickly is because we knew that football officials were going to do very little. A is because they're not used to it. B is because sport and governance is far too political. Certainly in our world game it is. And C is because it's an election year, which means even worse. And even our players uh, around the world were pretty poor and disappointing. So when we do a, a review one of the things that we'll be talking to our global players body, FIFPRO, is that that just wasn't enough. Um, a number of unions around the world were not able to organise high-profile players quickly enough, and ultimately we had to rely on a couple, and we got Giorgio Chiellini and Drogba, and the lesson is, A, they need to do more, B, the impact of those people coming out was immense because Drogba and Chiellini cut through to the Thai football community, and that's where we were struggling to get support because the Thai government had a misinformation campaign running. They were saying, look, everything's happened. It was all Australia. There's nothing to do between us and Bahrain, and this kid anyway is a criminal. And uh, and it was only when we got cut through from high-profile footballers that we were able to gain the attention. And once we could then articulate to the Thai football fans, which is most of the country, what his case actually was, I think their petition in Thai went from 1,000 people to 25,000 in one day. And all of a sudden, that's when the Thai government started to um, pay attention. Craig, I want to ask you a little bit about the role of sporting organisations, mm. FIFA in particular, but mm. I'm, I'm interested also more broadly in, in the links between sporting organisations and human rights. So mm. I wonder if you can help our listeners on this point, because human rights, when we hear about and talk mm. about human rights, those obligations usually attach to nation states, not mm. to private companies or organisations or bodies, and certainly uh, in the past, not to sporting bodies. Mm. But in FIFA's case, it's different now because Mm. there's a human rights policy, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that policy and your reflections on whether this is the start of a a Mm. movement that other sporting organisations, including those in Australia, might Mm. follow? Okay, let me start at the end, which is, yes, I believe it is. We thought that it was when Hakeem got in. We understood the importance of this case we thought that this case would be very much a litmus test for what is a relatively new human rights policy with FIFA. IOC also have one, um, although it is, 
I would say, a, a kind of watered-down version of FIFA's. FIFA actually have a really strong policy. One of the problems we had is, is because it's only 18 months or so old, the many of the football officials actually didn't understand their obligation under it. And one of the reasons that Hakim is free is because there was a, a group of Australians who, some of whom were involved in building this policy and in actually putting it in place. One of those is Brendan Schwab, who's, who's a lifelong friend of mine and the current chair of our Players Association. He actually was, as the head of World Players United, was one of the, the small cohort of organisations that had FIFA implement this policy. So we actually understood it to a far higher level than the people who were obligated to uphold it. And so that's why they were kind of surprised. And we were able to, I think, be at... And what we did is we kept some agility and ability to react and act and lead, which was kind of my role as an independent. And then we had people in the institutional space, which was Brendan with World Players United and FIFPro, who could then work within the institutional framework. And that's why it worked quite well. It's a very exciting field. It's one that I um, feel particularly strongly about is because we always talk about sport making great uh, inroads and benefit to the world, but we actually can do that now. In the reason it came about largely was because the World Cup was World Cups were awarded to Qatar and Russia. And because of the corruption around FIFA and in the bladder era, that was kind of used as leverage from the human rights and sport community to say, well, we need something, you know, they, they, they utilize that to, to be able to get it into place. And they've been able to make some change in the kafala labor system within Qatar. In Russia, there was LGBTI laws that were at least altered during the tournament. So at the moment, it's largely around the policies framed in terms of people in, around and through football, essentially. So it's very much uh, major event focused in the short term. But because of that, we can then start to hold people accountable to their domestic laws. We're very excited about being able to make change globally through this new field. Um, so say, for instance, um, the rights of women to watch games in Iran. You know, under the FIFA policy now, um, they must uphold all internationally recognised human rights law. And therefore, we're capable of saying to them, well, that is, as you said before, our membership of the international football community carries with it now human rights obligations. And that's very exciting that we can actually make this very significant change. One of the areas I'm particularly excited about is in Indigenous peoples and the conventions on the rights of Indigenous peoples globally. And all of a sudden we can start to look at that and say, in Australia here, what are the rights? What does that convention do? And even if Australia... For instance, any of these conventions is not a party to it or it's not in domestic law. It doesn't matter. Football Federation Australia are bound by it. So now we say your membership of FIFA means that you must uphold this. And by the way, that means that you must have a certain level of equality in terms of your resourcing for Indigenous people. That's a very, very exciting field. Craig, one of the parts of the article that really stood out to me was um, where you said, I've waited until Hakeem was safely home to explain that one of the reasons it was so difficult to garner international support was because of our own treatment of refugees. Um, can you talk a little bit to how those conversations went with the international stakeholders you're referencing there? I discovered this throughout the process. So when I first went to Bangkok um, and I met with a range of embassies and we had uh, the UNHCR in Bangkok who were starting to become quite active, but we wanted Filippo Grandi at the global level. We want Michelle Bachelet with the UN to also be on board. And, And what became clear is that actually our own treatment of asylum seekers in Australia has been so horrible that 
we have lost credibility. And some of those other organisations and governments and NGOs were saying to me, well, you know, really, in essence, they were saying, well, why is it that we should help you? Because when our people and refugees are in trouble, A, you don't help us, A, and B, is your, your, your own treatment of them as a country is not, is quite reprehensible. So actually, when I was at one of the UN organisations, I ended up saying to them, listen, I understand that this is a problem. And what I'm saying to you is that if you step forward and help us now to free Hakeem, I um, undertake to you that when I'm back in Australia afterwards, I'm happy to raise that. And it's something I feel strongly about anyway. And I give you my guarantee and undertaking that I will advocate for better treatment of asylum seekers and refugees in Australia. And they said to me, okay, good idea. Is this article that you've just written, this open letter to the Prime Minister, the first time that you've raised it at that level or have you privately yeah. spoken to the Prime Minister about it? Uh, previously, not previous to this, no. So what happened is, you know, I've worked in with refugee kids in football over probably the last 15 years with, um, with a program that we have up at uh, University of New South Wales. So I've always felt strongly about it. And then the, the, the first time really, though, um, that I started to talk about human rights publicly was in the Russia World Cup, where I started, you know, I started to think, look, here we are, and we're having a wonderful time in Russia, but all these people and journalists are being incarcerated and so on. It was the first time we really brought it out on air. And now is just a natural progression, having worked with Les and, and now after this and, and, and spoken to many of these organisations around the world, that I think I have a responsibility um, to raise it and I have a reason and a platform to do so. And it's, it's important for the country. How receptive do you think our government or sporting mm. bodies will be to your message? Well, I don't know, actually. So, you know, we all can see what the current asylum seeker policy is and, and how that they are termed as illegals, and we all know that's not the case. And then, So we have a long way to, to walk back in terms of getting in line with international human rights law, that's for sure. I'm conscious not to want to or not to or not to be seen to um, be in any way uh, talking about Hakim or his case in, in the way that we just want him to move on. This is about the young man now moving on and having a wonderful life by himself. But that's why it's important that I also work with Les for 16 years, whatever it was, because I, I've said in the letter today, Les is, was a Hungarian refugee and now we've seen two, so it's not just about Hakim. When it comes to policy, we need as many prominent articulate and probably moderate voices at the moment as possible. I'm not an I'm not an expert politician by any measure. I just think that Australia is ready for the discussion. That's my personal view. And um, there's a lot of Australians who feel we've gone way, way, way too far. So to me, it's not about vilifying Scott Morrison or anyone else. It's simply about saying, this is what the international community thinks of us. I've seen that very directly now. This is what I think as someone who just happened to, who happens to have a position publicly in the Australian community. And I'm happy to give that message either in a nice manner that I did today or more directly if I feel that it's necessary. And as someone said today, oh, well, the comments have been nice. And I said, well, that's great, but that's not why we talk. It's, and Hakeem's case was very much like that. Like we went to fight for Hakeem because we believed in it. You never know where it's going to end up. I mean, it could have gone the opposite direction, but it wouldn't have affected the belief that we had in, in the principles that we were fighting for. It's just nice in the end that you know, the, the country come on board and it ends up in a good place. I think it's nice for him uh, and it gives us more power and strength to be able to fight for other causes and other refugees and indeed a, a refugee policy. Craig, we already knew you were a good guy when we watched you step <laughs> up um, when uh, Lucy Zellick was right. 
sort of the target of some pretty horrific um, yeah, sexism around the mm. la- you know the way she was pronouncing names yes. of all things. Yeah. We've seen you step up now. Mm. What makes you the good guy? Like why? What's in you that makes you step up? Because a lot of people don't. Um, look, I don't know. I don't know if I'd, I'd say um, that I was a good guy or a bad guy, but why, why do I feel strongly about those things? Look, I don't know. I think a lot of those things come from sport and, and I've had the opportunity to, to work with a lot of great people and SBS is a wonderful organisation. I've been there nearly 20 years now. SBS is an organisation where people are there for a cause and we used to talk a lot about the mission of our game, football, and that was Johnny Warren and Les, but also multiculturalism and equality and treating people well and uh, and anti-discrimination and, and non-vilification and gender equality is a very simple, you know, is, is an adjunct to that. People at SBS feel very strongly about those things. You know, it's a bit like ABC in that respect. I was talking to someone we feel strongly about working for the organisation. We actually think at SBS that the organisation has made a massive contribution to the country. And everyone talks about what a wonderful multicultural society we are and we've got huge challenges still, but we feel that we're actually our organisation's contributed greatly to that. I think all of those things, we're all a product of our influences, you know, and, and I come out of the country in Lismore, which I think is also an important aspect. That is that you do stand by each other. That's a part of the community and country areas. Lucy's was very simple. This one was, was quite straightforward. You know, you've got a young man who's in trouble. It's not like, you know, we're, we're, I'm not going to be around the UN. You know, as a kid was in jail and he needed some help and um, we had the resources, the wherewithal and the, the public profile to be able to help. Lucy is a colleague of mine who happens to be an outstanding, brave journalist and she's getting attacked by the public. I mean, what else is it that you're actually going to do? <laughs> she needs support and it's my job as the person who works with her to support her. It's interesting, Craig, because we've actually seen in the last week or two another example of a high-profile uh, football journalist, Jay Humphrey in the UK, stepping up and, and also speaking out about, about uh, sexism in uh, football commentary. Right. You mentioned earlier, uh, you, you used the word brave just before, and, and I yeah, wonder yeah. if it takes some bravery, though, to, to step up in this way. And I, I do think about Colin Kaepernick, who you mentioned mm. earlier. Oh, Adam Goods is another perf- perfect example. Yeah. Peter Norman in years gone oh, by. Brilliant. There's a whole string of those athletes who have mm. spoken up about political issues but suffered enormously for it personally. Mm-hmm. Is there something different going on in this case mm. for you, do you think? And do you feel if you haven't copped a sort of sustained backlash from mm-hmm. the Australian mm-hmm. public. Mm-hmm. Why not? Oh, that's that might be more for you guys to comment on. But the first point is, if you're going to fight for something like this, you have to be prepared for a backlash to happen, right? And so none of us, I'm sure, certainly I didn't, consider, well, should we go and fight for this young Bahraini whose human rights are being breached and he happens to be part of our community? And how do we think that Australia is going to respond to that? That can't be a question. You, I think those of us in the public domain, we've had positive and negative. You know, I've had many uh, negative um, tweet storms and that's just part of our existence. And so you kind of just do what it is that you believe in. And if it goes well, it goes well. It, this was about going well for Hakeem, not for the reaction that we would get. The positive reaction of the campaign was only important to the extent that it got him out. And it did. That's the critical nature of it. If there had been, as you said, to use your term, a backlash, then it was unlikely we actually would have saved him. Athlete activists, you mentioned Peter Norman, Adam Goods. I assume that Adam knew that what he was doing was going to be highly controversial. It should be uncontroversial. I don't know. That's right. (laughs) He was saying... (laughs) 
In fact, I wrote a piece at that time saying that, you know, I know you guys are, are kind of AFL, um, you know, devotees, which is great. Um, in our game, being we, we are multicultural in our very DNA. And, and we thought what he did was completely uncontroversial. And I, I'm sure it would have been. Um, there's been many others. Billie Jean King, I was seeing the other night on the project that they put it in about how she was talking about uh, gender equality and prize money. And we're still fighting that today. I mean, here we are, you know, we're talking about Sam Kerr earning $400,000 when probably the highest paid male in the A-League, I don't know, but let's say it might be $1.3, $1.4 million. So why isn't she the same? She's equally as talented. And we've got a big fight now. It's really going to be enjoyable. We can get away from what was really intense with Hakeem, really worrying. You know, there, there generally was a life on the line. And if we lost it, we don't know how we would have lived through that. Whereas now you, you're talking about um, gender equality in football for prize money in this year's Women's World Cup. Like, that's just fun, you know. And the people who put, um, <laughs> put Hakeem in jail, we want to go and hold them accountable. I mean, that's just, that's just great times. You know, how can you not enjoy that? Because we're talking about sport governance that we believe in, you know, raising the level of and keeping people accountable. Like, we just can't wait to get stuck into that. But, of course, one of the problems, and so the refugee policy is a more broader issue and that's it's good to get in and i'm going to get involved in that really heavily now uh but one of the problems out of it is that everyone you know kind of now expects me or us to save every refugee who's in trouble and if it's horrible because you know i'm getting all these messages and you say oh, well you know you can't save everyone and it's really awful so i don't quite know how i'm going to handle that because people actually you know say look my family or my brother's here and this and that and that's that's been a really um a horrible part of the campaign yeah. and the wash-up is A, you realise how many people are in trouble and B, you realise that you actually can't help everyone and that you have to let a lot of people down because they think you've done that for Hakeem, you need to come and do it for my brother or my mother or my father or my sister. That's bad. Craig, on Hakeem, mm. how is he and how how's... You, you must have spent quite a bit of time with him over the last 10 days or so and talking yeah. to him. Yeah, I, I saw him yesterday just preparing for, um, you know, at, at the game, of course, um, prior to and at the Pascaval game. Look, he's in a great space. I don't know, but I get a feeling that if you are Bahraini and you have been, you've lived your life there and you understand the persecution of a certain um, section of the population, I think it's a bit of a different existence and a bit of a different mentality. And that may be one reason why he seems to have dealt with his ordeal so well. At the same time, though, we're very, and I'm exactly double his age, and I kind of keep saying to him, listen, you need to take some time for yourself. We're really worried about what might be a possible come down for him. Mm -hmm. Because even yesterday with Pascoval's celebration game, it was only a week before he was in the Prime Minister's office and that was really nice because to see it, see through his eyes, you know, saying, look, where he comes from, people are, you know, people who are in government or was are treated like that and there's a separation and, you know, we're second-class citizens and here he is in... There was a nice a moment when we were sitting with Maurice Payne, I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning, I'm sure she wouldn't, but we were spending a couple of hours with her prior to seeing Scott and we were having some breakfast in the office there and we were having some um, Vegemite toast as it happens and, and <laughs> of course choice. the crumbs were there. Yeah, and Maurice, who's a very, really a very, I think, a very lovely person, um, she was kind of um, like just getting the crumbs you know, into a little... Sweeping them up. Yeah, but absentmindedly on the table as she was talking. And he was looking, he was glancing at me like with these wide eyes. And I was thinking, what, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? And, and she was just doing this. And then she just kind of scooped it up as you did and just put it in the bin. 
And that, when she left the room, he said, wow, I said, oh, that's just incredible. You know, the foreign minister of your country is cleaning up the table Aww. while we're here. He kind of said he's cleaning up our table. I'm not sure that's what she was doing, but it's you a know. Vegemite etiquette. Yeah, <laughs> everyone knows that's that. What I said to him. I mean, how Good can you? Him. Yeah, but it was amazing to yes. see from him what he's saying is what a country this is. That you're a minister and yet you're normal, yeah. and that was a nice takeout that I think is kind of in my letter of yesterday. That's what Australia is about. It doesn't matter if you're the PM or what. That's why we keep talking about Scott and Bill. It's not the Prime Minister. I, I want to ask you one last question yeah. before we finish, which leads perfectly on from what you've just said. And this mm. is a genuine question. Okay. What next for you? Because there is talk about whether mm. you will either run for political mm. office or whether you might try your hand again at getting elected to the FFA. You uh, withdrew your nomination yes, last year. You didn't yeah. have enough. You said False you didn't have enough support. PM. <laughs> I mean, it's a genuine, it's a genuine yeah, question. Sure. Do you see yeah. something yeah. like that in your future? Look, I withdrew from the nomination because of the way it was conducted. I had quite a deal of support, but I knew that I couldn't work in that system even if elected. And that's why I've been asked to, to step up now. But to me, I, I can't make the difference. I was able to make a difference with all of you and everyone, the whole country really, but I was able to make a difference because I was independent and I was able to hold people accountable and conduct myself in the right way that I believe in. That's why when I ran for the election, I said that I wanted to be chairs because I knew I couldn't sit in the current structure, with not in a position of authority. It's of, of no use because the our game needs significant structural change. It's not about just generally saying I can't sit on a board. I've sit on many boards, but not the FFA board without a level of authority to make the changes that our game needs, which are very significant. It simply was of no use to either the game or me. So I don't know what will happen in the future. I simply say to our community, I'm happy to be involved in the right at the right time. I'm always, of course, there to help, but it needs the right structure for me to be able to work in the way that I, that I work. I want to help the country. I think we need a lot of help in a lot of areas. One of those is our values, as I said yesterday, and, and asylum seekers is one of those. The way we treat people, the way we treat domestic violence, the way we look after the vulnerable, all those things are issues I feel strong about. Indigenous Australia is really a strong one. Whether I can do that from within the political environment or from without, that's something that I'll have to think about, I think, in, in both the short term and probably medium term. It may be one or the other or both. I don't know. But I do feel I'm about to turn 50. I feel as though I really want to work, help now on social issues within Australia very strongly. Um, and I'll do that in whatever capacity I think at the time is right. Well, I know, Craig, throughout this whole story, you have been at pains to, to recognise and acknowledge mm. the huge team of people that's been behind you Incredible. and been behind Hakeem. But yeah. you have made an extraordinary personal contribution. Mm. So thank you. And thank yeah. you for um, the role you have played in really not I want to use the word kickstarting. That's not mm. quite right, but really kicking along the conversation about sport and human yeah, rights in this good. country. So thank you and congratulations Great. again. Great. I'd love to see it go further. So no, it's been a pleasure to join you guys. This is The Outer Sanctum on ABC Radio. Welcome back to The Outer Sanctum. Uh, LJ, 
Lauren Jessica Moorcroft. <laughs> he's, he's one of the assistant coaches at the North Melbourne Tasmanian Kangaroos and as part of um, coaching the women, she's also part of a huge push to um, really promote the coaching pathways. LJ, welcome to the Outer Sanctum. Thank you very much. I'm definitely fangirling here. I'm, <laughs> I'm loving every minute. Yeah, it's great. You've been a long-time listener so, and we're very pleased to have you in the studio. I have to say, you have the Rolls Royce of midfields to coach this year, and as great as that is, I would be terrified to drive a Rolls Royce. How are you going? <laughs> yeah, it is terrifying at times. Um, I'm really fortunate to have inherited this midfield group. Very autonomous, as we know, uh, Emma Carney, Jenna Bruton, um, Jamie Stanton, experienced midfielders, and then the ruck to complement it with Emma King and Kate um, Gillespie-Jones. So, yeah, terrifying at times because I need to be ahead of the schedule with those girls and, and evolving them. But also, yeah, beautiful to watch. Um, you've mentioned some very big personalities yeah. there. And you played alongside some of them. Yeah. So how did you make that transition from teammate to coach? Was that a bit orcs at times? Yeah, definitely. That was probably the most daunting one is Emma Carney. Um, and obviously with the talent she's got. But we were great mates playing at the Bulldogs together. And we had a great relationship as the foundation, I guess. So And still leaning on that friendship at times. like what Asking Emma what she thinks and what her opinion is is really important. And we drive it together. Yeah, I think that's probably key. There's been um, obviously quite a lot of talk about um, the system and how North has been able to recruit. Yeah. Let's just go one step forward and let's be greedy. Who else would you like? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, we'd always like a Darcy or a Katie or another midfielder to add more depth to my crew. But um, no, we are, yeah, we're really lucky that we could get that talent in the door. I know, you know, Laura Kane and Reese Harwood did a great job at recruiting and, and building that list. Yeah, we've copped a bit of flack for it, but... Some of those players wanted to be at North Melbourne because of the ties that we've already got. But at the same time, it's going to be hard to keep everybody. So we understand with expansion, yeah, we will lose some big names at the same time. We've been talking about mentors all morning and I read yeah. somewhere that if you had a would-be mentor, it would be Serena Williams. Yes. Um, <laughs> who have been some of your footy mentors and that have helped you through this process? Currently, I'm really lucky to have Scott Gowans as, as the head coach and I played under him at Diamond Creek. So he's been a great mentor for my coaching and giving me probably this opportunity at a young infancy of my coaching has been really lucky for me. Christy Kipich Burrell is, is my mentor I go to a fair bit. I've, I striked her late last year as somebody that we build a great relationship with. It's not even about at footy now, it's about the cross-coding of, of coaching and the mentoring I've got with her. You end up also just bits and pieces from everyone. So whether it's players, coaches, friends, family, I think that's what's key in my mentoring that yeah, you draw from everyone on different experiences and I'll probably encourage um, upcoming coaches and players to yeah, draw from multiple areas. One of the, you know, it's one thing to look at a team like say North on paper and say it looks like it should do really well, yeah. but to get that team to gel and also mm. with the added complication of having some of the team based in Tasmania, I would imagine that there are some other things where you really need to think about the above the shoulders sides yeah. in coaching. How do you approach that? Yeah, definitely. Um, we started with a community camp in December in Tasmania for a purpose that strong connection in Tassie, but also to really be in the homes of those Tasmanian girls as well and get them to show us what Tassie's like. And then each fortnight, some of our Melbourne players have gone down and trained in Tasmania. And then the girls have come up here to Victoria as well. So that's been key. Above the shoulders is always super important. Um, We know that particularly in the women's space. So we've got great staff and resources at North to 
probably assist in that area. But I think at the end of the day, it's the relationships, which I heard Al McConnell speak about, that players have with each other, coaches have with players, staff have with players. So we wanted to really create an open and um, really great learning space for players, whether they're from Tassie or Melbourne. And I think we've done that so far. We've just received a text message. It's a really interesting one. Um, one of our listeners has said one obvious difference between our show, The Outer Sanctum, and AFLM commentators is how uh, we are so sympathetic and encouraging to the losing coaches. Nathan Buckley and Damien Hardwick were under severe media pressure in their losing days. However, the suggestion is that we could do more critical analysis. There has to be scrutiny with Collingwood's women's team mm. where there seems to be extraordinary player turnover. And I, I take that feedback on because um, two things. We are really curious about what's happening at Collingwood. and But the other thing is I guess this competition is in such a new phase. It's so new that we're cons- we want to talk about the positives. We want to give it room to breathe. And, I mean, I really hate cancel culture. I don't want to be doing that in the women's game. I want to give it room to find its own feet. But how much is too much criticism or pressure on the coaches, LJ? Yeah, I just don't think it's that helpful. Like I think, um, I mean, Wayne would be feeling it completely at Collingwood. I'm sure Al is too. He handles himself really well. They both do. But I just don't think that the scrutiny is really helpful for anyone and particularly the players. In a short season, like we mentioned, the added pressure, they've already got the media, their family, everyone asking them every day how they're performing and what they're going to do to win. We don't need to throw another layer on it. Yes, I don't think it's helpful at all. I wanted to ask, I love finding out how things work. Mm. And (laughs) I've been really curious about the relationship between coaches and the runner. In my mind, it's like a golfer caddy relationship where, you know, know, it's a two-way. Am I right or is it? (laughs) Yeah, to a degree. I think it is. Um, Yeah, you really rely heavily on your runner. You'd love to, I think. That would be my um, suggestion to the AFL. You're trying to deliver that message, but at the same time, that message won't get there for a while. Um, so you've got to probably rely on what you do during the week and pre-game to get those messages out. Yeah, the relationship has to be a good one. You've got to trust the runner with the right messaging too. And I think that's key in um, it, the infancy that we spoke about with women and in sport, that the messaging has to be positive with a slight constructive part to it. If it's negative, you're going to lose them. Can I also ask, is there a um, like a priority? Like if you've got three coaches in the yeah. box and you all want to get a message out, yep. how does the runner pick? Yeah, Scott Scott picks, I think, in our box. (laughs) Maybe we should ask a runner. Do you know one, Emma? Yeah, we should get a runner. I live with a runner. I'm not entirely sure he's got that much intellectual property to share just yet. (laughs) He's new. How does his relationship go then? Well, so, yeah, I will disclose that um, my partner, my husband, is the runner for the Carlton women's team and uh, he has a relationship with the coach where he gets yelled at, (laughs) all of them. Um, And I think he would prioritise the senior coach's um, messages. But when I ask him about the messages, he's either being cagey because I work Mm. in the media. He tells me it's really just about getting people to come off and rest. Yeah, Yeah. the changeovers is really challenging. And I think the players are finding it really hard to come off the ground because it's there's so few of them. Short time frames. There's only 16 on the sides. You know, it's it's really hard. That's why I request two. Like one for messaging for the key messages that the coaches need and one for the changes, the rotations. Mm. LJ, people might actually see your face on a carton of eggs. (laughs) And that is because you are part of um, a coaches association 
pathway. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a um, it's really good actually, and it, I'm probably just missed the boat on it, but it's excellent that um, the <laughs> coaches excellent. Go, that the coaches <laughs> association have created a scholarship for current AFLW players. So this year, one will get picked to go into the next coach um, program. They'll also get a scholarship over to the US to do a study tour with the coaches association, and then get a mentor. So a mentor, which is on the theme of today. 10 years coaching experience to mentor them in their coaching pathway. So that'll happen this year and next year for um, two AFLW players. So it's pretty good. That's an amazing thing, but just on the frivolous side, what did you, when you were getting your photo taken, did you know it was going on eggs? Yeah, yeah, I did. And I've copped that much flack for the eggs. The boys at North have given me, and the girls, that many egg jokes this week. I've had, I've had enough. We'll, we'll restrain ourselves. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Your background's in teaching, mm-hmm. um, and you're seeing more and more that uh, coaches are coming from that field, you know, Alistair Clarkson and yeah. Brendan Bolton, for example, are fairly significant uh, yeah. ach- <laughs> achievers in that space. What do you bring from your teaching role to, as a coach? Yeah, I think it's that relationship part that you need to strike with teaching students as well. So it's got to be really key. Communication, I think, and people management. So they're really transferable skills that um, I'm really fortunate to have. And I've been lucky to be able to transfer them quickly into AFLW coaching space. But I think um, you'll see more and more teachers and particularly a lot of the women footballers are teachers Mm. as well. So I hope to see a lot more transfer over in that coaching space. There are some games coming up that Mm. we, well, we haven't, the round hasn't started yet, LJ. We'd love to um, talk to you about North and Dees, but quickly, um, so Cats and Blues are playing today. The notable things for me there are that Astro Connor is back and I was worried that she was maybe not going to see out the season. She had a knee knock, I think, but she's back for Geelong and also making history today will be Abby McCullough. Abby McKay, I need to get confirmation. Yeah. What is it, LJ? I think it's Mackay. Andy Mackay. Yeah. yeah. Abby Mackay. Yeah. Who knows? I'll find both. out. I'll find out. Abby Mackay is making the history, making history today in the father daughter rule taking to the field. Dogs and Lions also. Who's going to that game? Uh, yeah, that's on tonight at the Witten Oval. And, you know, everyone's talking about the grand final replay. It's a little hard to judge um, how this one's going to go, I think, um, because, you know, the Bulldogs are playing in a quite a, a tough uh, conference there. Um, there's some very good matchups though that I'm keen to see. So obviously Lauren Sparks on um, Sabrina um, mm. is is a, a key one and that's probably the one I'll be watching for. Crows and dogs? Uh, crows and dockers, I should yeah, say. Crows. Those dockers, oh my gosh, dockers. this is going to be a massive game. Well, both mm. of them are really in form at the moment. Adelaide's come off a good win as well and, um, and gave Cats a bit of a touch-up and Frio's gave Pies a shellacking last mm. week. Um, you know, they're looking pretty good. I think it'll be a cracker of a game. But I have to say, even though it's in Darwin, uh, which is, you know, Adelaide's home technically, I still feel like Frio might have the edge over them. They're just so fast and they're just um, really coming together as a team at the moment. Pies yeah. and Giants tomorrow, yeah. Well, both are vying for their first win. They're playing at Morwell Recreation Reserve uh, in the afternoon and... This is going to be a huge game. Forward Christina Bernardi is uh, facing her former side for the first time since joining the Giants. You've got Melissa Kyes back in. Georgie Parker's putting on the boots for the first time this year. Uh, Christy Stratton and Emma Grant will also rejoin the uh, team from their injuries. Uh, Ash Brazzle is out. Yeah, it's massive, it, isn't it? It, it, it is a heart. You you wonder how the Pies will win. So and let's not forget Al McConnell's giggle when he yeah. said, yes. "We're just one win and some good percentage <laughs> yeah, away exactly from that's shooting right. right to the top." And Lucy rounding it out. Sorry, I jumped in early. It's because I'm so keen because I actually think this <laughs> might be match of the round. Melbourne and North out at Casey Fields. I think this is going to be a great game. Both are high scoring. Both have the ability to really score quickly. They both have strong. 
midfields and they both have really good defensive pressure. So the things that I'm going to be looking for are Lauren Pierce and Emma King, two of the great rucks, the midfields, Bruton and Carney versus Paxman and Mithen. And we've got on both sides um, players that can just run like a Katie Ashmore and mm. a Alicia Newman. Mm, so amazing. there's going to be heaps to watch What's the skinny? No, look, we take this as a really big game. We know that Melbourne are in good form after obviously watching them last week with Brisbane. Yeah, they've got a really strong midfield, so I've had to do a fair bit of work this week. But we know that we need to evolve. After three games, people have watched and scouted us, so um, you will see some slight changes from us tomorrow. Yeah, it'll be a great game. Can I just say how much I'm loving Emma King's game? Alicia yeah. and I are massive fans of Emma because yeah. we met her way back when she first signed and, and we just love her. She's a great personality, but it's been great watching her really grow. Yeah, I leaned really heavily on um, Emma King at the start, best ruck in the comp from my mind, and so I wanted to know how we can get the best out of Emma and probably really create that dominant force of hers because I think she's just fantastic. So, yeah, great girl to have um, leading our midfield. LJ, thank you so much for joining us today. An hour is never long enough for us to talk about women's footy. I'd like to thank the people who've joined us on the show today. Thanks to Elle McConnell. Thanks to Craig Foster. Thanks, of course, to LJ and to Tess Armstrong. We want to go out with something very special today. Uh, ABC Kin, a friend of the pod, Claire Bowditch, has got a very new, appropriate and gorgeous song called Woman Out. We're going to leave you with that. It's a women's footy anthem. The only thing left to say is go, go footy. footy. Oh, gorgeous Sanctimers. We just, we love you so much and we love hearing feedback from you. So if you have enjoyed the show, it would mean the world to us if you would tell a friend, text us, tweet us, put a review on iTunes, um, make sure that you've subscribed to the podcast. You know what I like to say? Grab your favourite misogynist's phone and just secretly download the podcast onto their podcast apps. Just try it. Just try it. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks very much for your support.